Well, I want to <clears throat> extend my welcome to you as well. I'm Tony Giles, one of the pastors, and as we step into this most unusual of weeks, uh, this week between Christmas and New Year's, uh, we do so together. What I'm going to suggest is that there is a way to do that. But for some of us, it's uh, hard to do that. If you happen to be one of those who work in retail or healthcare or are, are a plumber, work doesn't stop. Uh, but, uh, or if you're a parent of multiple children under the age of seven, work never stops. This may not be the downtime that some of us learned to enjoy during college. That's what it was for me. That, um, that period of time between the end of one semester and the beginning of another that I've, all, that I've been looking for ever since. You know, when things were done and nothing yet had started, and then there's this downtime that is unique. It's true for students for a while. It's true for some of us. But it may, be, it may not be a full week of downtime that you have here this week. Maybe it's a pocket of time. But whether it's a week that has slowed, where the flurry has faded, or it's just a pocket... It is a gift. And I want to urge us today to consider that gift and how it is that we might step into that as individuals. How do we think about this gift of some downtime? Or maybe it's just a pocket. There's reasons that we might not do that, that we may not take the time to do what I'm about to suggest, and that is that we are too busy. That's true for lots of us, that we, won't, we don't stop doing something very long before we start doing something else, and oftentimes our projects overlap or get tangled together, and there is not the, the downtime that I'm urging us upon us today. We might be too busy looking ahead. We're already on to the next thing. But it might be that we're too afraid, that we're too reluctant because of regret and disappointment and failures. For some of you, the year past includes some of the deepest sorrows you've ever known. But whether it's too busy or too afraid, it may be that we just don't know how. And that's probably true, for, I'm going to suggest, for all of us. That we just don't know how to do that in such a way that it is beneficial to us and maybe to others. You see, we don't know how to do so in a way that makes it beneficial <clears throat> because we lack something that we only get when we turn to God's Word. We get a biblical perspective on time. We, we find from God's Word a way to understand time and what is going on in time, including our own lives, including 2021. We're going to turn to Ecclesiastes of all places. And some of you know where we're headed because it's printed for you. But in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, we find something remarkably helpful as we think about the prospect of looking back as well as looking ahead but looking back in a way that's beneficial. The author 
appears to be Solomon. He's called Koaleth, uh, which means, uh, one way to translate that is one who gathers. The author, probably Solomon, is one called the preacher in some translations as one who gathers people together to hear something or to unfold something. And that's what he does. That's what he's been doing for for two chapters. Now we get to chapter 3, and we find from the beginning of his book, we find that his thesis that the whole of our lives comes and goes like a vapor, like the smoke from an extinguished candle is one of the word pictures that he gives us. And it may be that 2021 feels like or looks like the smoke of an extinguished candle. But I want to propose to you that there's something more. That there's something to be had. There's something to embrace. There's something to take hold of besides the smoke of an extinguished candle. You know, for two chapters, if you're familiar at all with Ecclesiastes, he has talked about that vapor, that vanity, that emptiness, or that meaninglessness that marks life apart from God, by the way. I love the way Philip Ryken puts this. When we get to chapter 3, which we're going to in just a moment, he says this, After everything else the preacher has said about the vanity of our existence, we probably expect the author to say something discouraging about time, too. He might say that time is too short, for example, that thus we never have enough of it to do all the things we want to do. He could have said that. Or he might talk about the tyranny of time, the way it controls our lives down to the last millisecond. He might say that time is fleeting and that we're running out of time. Or he might say that once time is gone, it can never be recovered. Like the American educator Horace Mann, who once wrote the following, want to add, lost yesterday, somewhere between sunrise and sunset, two golden hours, each set with 60 diamond minutes. No reward is offered for they are gone forever. Those are some of the things the preacher might have said, but he decided not to say any of those. Instead, he celebrated the orderliness of God by writing what many consider to be the world's most famous poem on the subject of time. And as we hear what he has to say, You can trust God's timing. You can trust God's timing in the seasons of your life when you see his purposes and when you can't or don't understand or agree with it. That's the text before us. I want to invite you to turn your attention to this. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 3 beginning with verse 1 through verse 15. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, 
A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, would you now open your word to our hearts and our eyes that we might understand things that we don't. That we might take hold of the promises that are true. And that we might see the beauty of the face of the one to whom we belong, Christ our Lord. Teach us and lead us there, we pray. For his glory and our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, just at a glance, you can see that this text before us falls into two blocks of material. There's a poem alluded to earlier as perhaps the most famous poem ever written on time. And usually a poem that ends with verse 8 and goes no further. There is a prose section that follows it, and those two, the, the poetry and the, and the prose, are the two halves of what we will consider this morning. And I hope you will see why it's important to include and get to the second block before we, as we leave the first block. The first one we might describe as, it's been described as, the ebb and flow of time. You see it right there, don't you? In words that are wonderfully assembled, these positive and negatives. But it all begins in verse 1 with a thesis. That is, here's the big idea that the next verses unfold and unpack for us. And And the thesis is this. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. There is a time for everything. (laughs) All those things that make up our lives, there's a time. 
There's a time for it. And as, as you heard these, we'll walk through these a bit in just a moment. But, and as we do, you're going to find your life, your experience, and maybe your 2021 in some of these categories. The thesis is that there is a time for everything. There's a season for every matter under heaven. By the way, you find these positives and negatives, and they're structured in such a way that they most likely want us to understand that it's not just this extreme or that extreme, but everything in between. So there's a time to be born. There's a time to die. We've had births and deaths in this congregation this year. In your family, in your acquaintances, there have been births. There have been deaths. There is a time for birth and death. There's a time to grow. There's a time for harvest. There's a time to plant that seed and a time to take up. We don't want a a plant in the ground that never comes up. There's a time to kill. Well, that raises a question or two. Maybe he's referring there to a biblically ordained, sanctioned, method or reasons for capital punishment, perhaps. It may be self-defense. But whatever he's not explaining (laughs) with the word, it, it, it is there. There is a time to kill, to heal, to weep, and to laugh, to mourn and dance. There's a time to acquire, and there's a time to lose. There's a time to let that go. There's a time to speak up, if only to God, and a time to be silent. A time to love, a time to hate. Maybe it's to hate the consequences of the fall, but there's a time to love and a time to hate. There's a time for war. Maybe that's the just war, but there's a time for war and a time for peace. There's a lot of things to remember and a lot of things we would choose to forget, perhaps. A lot of joys and sorrows and a lot in between. The novelist Joseph Heller looked at this list and called it this, a trash bag of random coincidences torn open in the wind. Well, that's one way to read it. (laughs) That that life happens and, and and there's no order or progression. People have looked long and hard to find an order and progression of the series and they come up empty. And so Joseph Heller, it's, he's un, it's understood that maybe the best take on this is a trash bag of random coincidence torn open in the wind. Or as the author Solomon of, of the book talks about, that our life is vanity. It's a vapor. It's like smoke from an extinguished candle is the way it's been described. Is that the best we can do? I will occasionally read a blog by Tim Challies that I would commend to you, and he wrote one this past week entitled, Christmas Bitter, Christmas Sweet. And this will ring true for some of you that have known bitterness uh, this year, or things you would rather forget. He says, there are not many pure celebrations. Eventually, every joy is tempered by at least some measure of grief Every new pleasure, wistful about some memory of pain. But then he goes on to say, like many of us would want God to take away our grief, 
Tim writes to say, if God were to take away our grief, he would have to take away our love. I find that helpful. To understand not only the joys, but also the sorrows, the things that we, I might not want to look back on in 2021. And I'd rather turn the page. But we would have to say at least, reading and taking hold of this poem, it leaves us unsettled a bit. To simply say, this happens and then that happens. And that's why some people read that and they jump to the the prose section of it and say, the only thing to do is just eat and drink and be merry. Because all these things are out of our control. Life happens. So let's eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. Well, that is, I would suggest, an inaccurate conclusion to what the writer is giving us here. But there is a majesty and a madness to the whole thing, according to one commentator. And to another, there is a tyranny to it. Because the ebb and flow has harsh implications. Derek Kidner suggests that the ebb and flow is tyrannical to us if, we, if it simply means that we dance to a tune or many tunes not of our own making. That's harsh. But so is this, that maybe perhaps another implication is that nothing we pursue has any permanence. You could draw that conclusion. But the poetry and its beauty... I would suggest, is only half of the story the preacher is telling us. So we go quickly then to the prose. One writer puts it like this. Um, David Gibson writes, The poetry is setting up a problem that the prose seeks to resolve. We need the punch of his prose if we are to actually find joy and hope in the poetry. We have to hold these two together in such a way that it begins to click and make sense to us. And that's where we see there's not only the ebb and flow of time, there's the purpose and the orderliness of God. That's what we find when we get to verse 9. As he begins this section, he repeats a question or or a a fear that he has established early on in the book, and you will recognize this perhaps. Verse 9 sounds a whole lot like, if not exactly like, chapter 1, verse 3, where Solomon, presumably, writes, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils? And then there's this key phrase, under the sun. He's trying to figure out life under the sun. And what that is, that's a a word picture of life lived apart from God. Without God, without reference. Which is why when he gets to verse 10, he interjects the missing piece. The thing that's so critical to understand if we're to connect the dots from this poem to, to live life in this world well. And that is to recognize that God is at work and he is up to something. The preacher's survey is no longer limited to under the sun. As we move into the prose section, he's, he's bringing to our faces, before our face, the working of God is brought into consideration, and that changes everything. I mean, did you notice in that beautiful poem, there was no reference 
to the one who made this world and the one who made you. And frankly, that's exactly how some of us choose to live. Without reference to the one who made this world and made us for his purposes and his glory. Who had some intentions in mind when he made this world. Verse 11, we're going to spend a few minutes here in verse 11. So look at that with me if you would. Verse 11, we're going to look at three phrases that Solomon has joined together. When he writes that he has made everything beautiful in its time. Now if, you, if your eyes go back to the top to look at the poem, you will see some things in there that are beautiful. And you will find a number that are not not even close. So what does he mean? What's beautiful about cancer? What's beautiful about tragedy? About injustice? About abuse? About loneliness? What is beautiful about that? Well, you'll be glad to know there's a better translation. The New American Standard actually, I think, gets it pretty well when, when those editors, those translators, translate it like this. He has made everything appropriate in its time. Or maybe fitting. That everything fits. Everything lands in the right place at the right time is what, is what the author of Ecclesiastes seems to be saying there. He's made it beautiful. He's made it fitting. He's made it appropriate. And when the preacher says that God has made everything beautiful in his time, he's not just talking about the way that God made the world in the first place. That garden. As beautiful as it was. What he's saying, if that translation is right, is that what God is up to in these words to us is that he's, he's, it's not just talking about the way God made the world in the first place, but about the way he has ruled it ever since. The way he has ruled the world that he made ever since, it's fitting. All of life unfolds under the appointment of God's providence. Now, that's not a Presbyterian doctrine. You know that, right? That's not a Presbyterian doctrine. That's a biblical notion that God is God. <laughs> and there's nothing apart from him that runs and rules anything. Buck Parsons writes for Ligonier Ministries, and he, he wrote this, these very helpful words sometime in the past. If you don't believe God is sovereign, you have every reason to worry about today. But I want to suggest a corollary that goes with that. That if you do believe God is sovereign, you have no reason to despair over the past. Because both of those are true. If God is sovereign, you have no reason to worry about today. If God is sovereign, you have no reason to despair over the past. Both of those are true. He has made everything fitting at its time. Even when we don't understand it or agree with it. That's hugely important, friends. Even when we don't understand it or agree with it. God is up to something. And he's placed in us a desire to want to know what that is. <laughs> so you're in good company <laughs> to want to know how does this puzzle work? 
He's put eternity into man's heart, is, is Solomon's language. In addition to order and providence, God has planted in the human heart, that is yours, a desire to know how this plan makes all the details fit together. We want to know. It's uh, what's been described as a compulsive drive that we have because we're made in the image of God. <laughs> to want to be able to grasp the big picture that is, for many of us, most of the time, behind the curtain. We want something that transcends our immediate situation. We want to be able to, to see ahead and to be able to look back and see how all of these things have worked. God in his mercies will sometimes reveal that. But you need to hear these words. We need to hear the end of this sentence in verse 11. Yet he has done so, so that man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Again, David Gibson writes, The times of my life are not the only times there are. I need to get that. And that part of being wise in this world is, is learning to accept that we only have very limited access to the big picture. But you know what that calls us to, friends? I think you do. Trust. Faith. It's a biblical category. And that's what the God who made this world is most up to in your life in 2021 and the years ahead that are, that are coming. It's to weave into your life a posture of trust and faith even when we don't see the things that we long to see. Because while we may not see the reasons, we begin to see the face of the one to whom we belong. I've said this repeatedly over the years, and I don't know that it was original with me, but it's a conclusion you can draw when you read through the Psalms. Don't you, do you remember all those why God, those how long, all those laments that begin with why God, how long? There's, there's, there's dozens of laments. And by the time you get to the end of that lament, something is different. With one exception. Psalm 88 ends with, and darkness is my closest friend. But all those other laments end with something different. And you know what's different? It's not the circumstances. It's not the events. It's the perspective that we're after right here. To be able to see life in this world, trusting the one who made this world, who is lovely and good and purposeful, even when it makes us scratch our heads. That's what we find here. When we finally do get to those verses, what, what Koaleth, the preacher, Solomon, is suggesting to us is that the despair that might, that might result from the poem was not his, and it need not be ours. There is something else, and it's to understand the work of God, that God is up to something grand and glorious and, yes, mysterious, much of the time. When he says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever, nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear him. We talked about that last week, for those of you that were here 
that the fear of God is not a terror, although <clears throat> there's an aspect of that that probably fits in some situations. But when the Bible talks about fear, it's talking about taking God and putting Him front and center. That He is center stage. As I try to make sense of 2021 or the failures and the frustrations and the regrets and the disappointments and the joys, the things that are good, the things that were given to me, the, the blessings that are, that are ours, we try to understand that the only way to truly understand that is to put God front and center. That He is the giver of good gifts and He is the one who sustains us through trial and tragedy. It's Him. One of the most helpful words I ever heard about tragedy once was, don't keep an arm's length the only one who really can help you. And that's what we see Solomon suggesting, that there is a way to live life before God in the world that he made. He's not saying that there's nothing that we can do about what happens. His point, rather, is that there's a fittingness to what happens. God does everything at just the right time. Let me say that again. God does everything at just the right time. And you know where we see that most clearly? It's to recognize that as we have celebrated Advent, the gospel story that, that takes root and shape in, in Advent form, that is, we walk into now past Advent into the rest of the year and the rest of our lives. It's that we center our lives around to put God at the front, to put God front and center, is to put the gospel right there. This God, the one, the true story, that God made a good world that was marred by sin and evil, but through Jesus Christ, he redeemed it at infinite cost to himself so that someday he will return to renew all creation end all suffering and death, and restore absolute peace, justice, and joy in the world forever. That is the gospel. And it may help us. No, it will help us. <laughs> to recognize that while Solomon is helpful, in the words of of a pagan New Testament character, there is one greater than Solomon. As helpful as Solomon is, there's one greater than Solomon who is here, Matthew 12, referring to Jesus. You know, Jesus, the one for whom there was time to keep silent before his accusers. There was a time to speak all that the Father had revealed to him. There was a time to scatter the self-righteous religious folk of the day. There was a time to gather all that the Father had given him. There was a time to be born. The New Testament calls it the fullness of time. At the, when the fullness of time had come, Galatians 4, God sent forth His Son that we've just marked and celebrated. At just the right time, Philip Riken writes, when the Gentiles were tired of serving the old pagan gods, when the Jews were weary of trying and failing to keep God's law, when the Greeks had given the world a common language, when the Romans had established a relatively safe and easy travel across the Mediterranean, 
at just the right time, Jesus was born. There was also a day appointed for Jesus to die. He died on that particular day, not a day before or a day after. For years, people had plotted against him, trying to put him to death as soon as they could. But his hour had not yet come, John 7. When the hour did come, Jesus was crucified on Calvary, where he suffered for the vanity of all our sin. The scripture says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time. And he rose again at the right time. On the third day, as the scriptures had promised. So Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection all occurred at the right time. There is a time and a season for everything under heaven. There is a time for redemption that is yours, friends, in Christ. So how do we work this into our lives? Just to close. I want to invite as many of you as can to, to join Ben and myself and the weeks ahead, starting mid-January, mid where we will walk a little slower through the book of Ecclesiastes. Not the whole book in six weeks, but we're going to walk through it and we're going to talk through it and we may talk about some of the implications of this very passage. So I want to invite you to join us there to, to work these truths into your own life. But if you can't do that, uh, you can do this. You can rethink some of your assumptions. You know, those things that we think that we don't know that we think. <laughs> those perspectives that we have that are so much a part of us we don't recognize them. Ian Duguid is one of my favorite writers on such things. And he, he made the comment once that the preacher in Ecclesiastes may be something like an Old Testament version of Francis Schaeffer. Do you know that name? Many of you do. You know, the, the, the philosopher, theologian, pastor who was always challenging us to re-examine the positions that we hold, the ones that, were, that are formed under the sun, that is, apart from God. That's why I'm looking forward to a few weeks with some of you in, in the book of Ecclesiastes. But I'm also really helped, I was really helped by these words from, from Alec Matir. Facing life is, is like standing looking at a great wall. Extending endlessly in each direction, blocking off the future. On this wall are written all the problems and groanings of life, all its lightness and joys as well. There are things that await us, facing us inescapably as we search for a way through the wall. But there is a door. The door is labeled God, Revelation, Faith. It's an invitation to enter the future as well as looking back under God in light of His truth and along the way of trust. And so we enter. We're now in the arena of faith. 
But conversion involves an about phase so that we find ourselves still facing the wall. We still face all the groanings, problems, and happiness of life, and we still cannot explain them. Now, however, we are coming to them bearing their burden and rejoicing in their joys on a different footing with God rather than without Him. Living the life of faith in a world that does not add up. With God. Emmanuel. God with us. And with God by faith, facing life in a fallen world, we have categories if we don't have understanding for what God is up to. If you were to read Isaiah 40, you would find this verse. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right hand is disregarded by God? Have you ever felt that? Why, God, is my life hidden from your, your benevolence and your mercy and your care? Your provision? Why, is, why am I hidden? Well, what the Ecclesiastes writer wants us to understand is that your way is not so entangled that it is hidden from the Lord. Because we live in the Creator's world. And we walk in the Creator's world. And we do so by faith. Trusting in the one who made time and entered time to redeem time and you for his glory and his purposes. You're not hidden. You're not, your life is not tangled. Oh, it may be confusing, but there is, there is a God who, to whom you belong, who loves you with an infinite love, a committed love that will not let go. And what he's after is to create in us a posture of faith and trust in the one who entered time, who stands above time, is in the process of renewing all things for his glory. This past year has, has been God's work in your own life. There are blessings to remember, there are protections to acknowledge. There's provisions that he has granted. Maybe there's some illusions that he has graciously, if painfully, shattered. And maybe there's a hope that he's rekindled. And maybe he's rekindling that today because he is up to something. In the lives of all those who bear his name to teach us that the times of our lives are not the only times there are. That he has put eternity in your heart to want to understand and he gives you himself that when the circumstances haven't changed and 2021 is what it was, God is at work doing something grand and glorious. And it's to tie you, it's to tie us into the story of stories that takes place within time and beyond time. Your life counts for eternity. Placed in his righteous right hand, you are his Sealed for, for, for that eternity, if you were his. And his plea to you this day is to re-examine the assumptions that would keep you from that. And to take hold of the one who has come to take hold of you. Christ our Lord.
We're going to close this with a prayer. It's printed for you in the bulletin. You may, some of you may recognize this. It comes from a collection of Puritan prayers entitled The Valley of Vision. This one entitled Years In. I want to invite you to use these words to responsively respond uh, to God's work in your life and in, in our midst this day. O oh, love beyond compare, you are good when you give, when you take away. When the sun shines upon me, when night gathers over me, you have loved me before the foundation of the world, and in love did redeem my soul. You love me still, in spite of my hard heart, in gratitude, distrust. Your goodness has been with me during another year, leading me through a twisting wilderness, in retreat, helping me to advance, when beaten back, making sure headway. Your goodness will be with me in the year ahead. I hoist sail and draw up anchor with you as the blessed pilot of my future as of my past. I bless you that you have veiled my eyes to the waters ahead. If you have appointed storms of tribulation, you will be with me in them. If I have to pass through tempests of persecution and temptation, I shall not drown. If I am to die, I shall see your face the sooner. If a painful end is to be my lot, grant me grace that my faith fail not. If I am to be cast aside from the service I love, I can make no stipulation. Only glorify yourself in me, whether in comfort or trial, as a chosen vessel, always fit for your use. Amen.